Okay. So G.K. Chesterton, English author, last century, um, on Revelation, he said, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, speaking of the book of Revelation, right? He saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. So we are about to enter into a wild book. This is a wild book, but more wild still are so many of the myriad interpretations of this wild book. Uh, and because, partly because of that, we tend to avoid it. We tend to fear it, uh, but not in a healthy way. Um, but I, I want to I make the case today and this year as we walk through the book together that um, this is the devil's victory. Being afraid of this book is the devil's win because revelation is the capstone of God's perfect and revealed word to us for a reason. It is the perfect consummation of God's revealed word to us. And is all of his word is Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene, his very person tells us this. We get this at the beginning of all the gospels. We get it at the end of the gospel of Luke and other places in Luke 24, where Jesus says, you want to know how to read the scriptures? Me. I'm the point. All of history points to me. All of God's word points to me. I am the word. All, every, all meaning fi- converges on me and comes out of me. All of history converges on Christ and goes forth from Christ. Revelation features that more powerfully than any other book. And Satan hates Jesus Christ. And he is the hero of this book. It is one of the most Christ. I want to argue over the course of this year, and I'm going to say it now make a few points, but I want to demonstrate it together as we walk through it in house churches. And as I have 11 or 12 chances this, this year to preach this book. And what I'll do is I'll preach more theological sort of, I'll give you a more of a theological grid for the book. And then in house churches, we'll walk through the book passage by passage. Okay. Um, but I want to make the case together as we walk through the book, that this is perhaps the most Christ saturated, Christ exalting, hope filled book in the Bible. So when we think when we come to this book and our immediate sort of reaction to it, our feeling about it is fear. We know we've gotten it wrong. So I hope that changes. This morning is going to be a flyover of the book. It's going to be an introduction to the series and to the book. And uh, we're really just going to focus on to that effect on the introductory verse uh, on the first three words of the book in the Greek. It's five words in the English. And then on uh, the first three verses more broadly, the ones that Nathaniel read the second time, uh, chapter one, not chapter two. Okay. So let's get straight to it by debunking some of the mis. And if you, I said this in a text, um, earlier this week, but if you are a note taker, even if you're not, if you have a, if you have a notepad or even if you don't, I think there's some space on the bulletin. You may, you may want to, I usually encourage folks, just listen, listen to the Lord as he's speaking through me or whoever the preacher is, as, as, as the preacher preaches. But, um, this is, this might be because it's an introductory sermon and this is such a book as it is a wild a wild book. Uh, you may want to take notes. I'm going to try to give you something of a grid and you may even want to come back as we're recording. You know, it'll be online. It'll be on the app. If you need to come back as we walk through the book and go, okay, what, what are the, what's, what are the sort of grid markers that, that Taylor is using here to understand the book? Um, and I will say this, and then I'll jump in on the first point, which is what the book is not about. Um, take everything back to scripture. Be like the Bereans, as always. You know, don't take my word for it. I, I'm, I'm trying to preach and unpack the very word of God, which is Jesus. Um, and so let's do that together. And if I say some things that, that sort of shock your theological sensibilities as they relate to this wild book, um, give some grace and then let's entrust that I, I'm doing my best to unpack the actual word and then let's take it, take it back to that together, okay? 
Um, so with no further ado, what it's not about, okay? Um, it's not about, uh, okay, the last days, okay? The last days, it's, when I say the last days, the book is not primarily about the last days as some future thing. We are in the last days. Now, I'm going to try to, I'm going to burn a bunch of barns right now. We'll come back later as we walk through the book, and I'll try to make a case for this. So I'm not going to make every case t- today here. I might give you some, some, uh, some critical, some concrete details, but we'll keep moving. So the last days are not some future thing, nor is the book primarily about the last days. We are in the last days. If you, if you, if you read Acts 2, starting in verse 17 and forward, Peter's sermon, the first sermon of the church, as it were, in Acts chapter 2, Peter starts by saying, the last days start right now. Okay, in these last days, now we are seeing Joel 2, the prophecy of Joel fulfilled as the Holy Spirit comes. The last days are between the two comings of Christ. Okay, and so what we read about in Revelation is happening between his first coming and his second coming. Um, This book is not primarily about the future. It is some, obviously, the new creation fully come. Jesus come to live with us bodily, um, you know, finishing what he started, all that stuff. There's obviously some future things, but it's not primarily about the future. It's, it's lots about what God has already done, is doing, and then, yes, some of what he will do until Christ returns and then Christ returning to make all things new. Um, John, the key verse here is uh, John sets this out in chapter 1. He sets a lot of the grid out in chapter 1, obviously. Revelation 1.19, it says, John, Jesus says to John, John, write what you have seen, so what you have seen, what is, and what will take place. So we, Revelation is about what's already happened. It had to make sense to the church that John was writing to from the island of Patmos, and it did. Um, what is happening now and then what will take place. Um, secondly, what it's not about, some future tribulation. Again, like with the last days, I want to argue moving forward and from this book that we are in that tribulation. Okay, if you look at 1 verse 9, um, if you look at 1 verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother... And partner in what? In the tribulation. Okay? Um, and that's not, that's not just a proof text. There's lots more where that came from. But what we see is between the time of the two comings in the scriptures, I want to put forward to you that the last days aren't some future thing, nor is the tribulation some future thing. The tribulation and the last days are the times between the two advents of Christ. We are in them. Okay? There's a reason that the, persec- the church is being persecuted and has been since Christ came. The people of God has always, have always been persecuted. And as the church is go- goes through tribulation, it grows. Okay? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church is like, like uh, persecution in the church are like a fist on water. As the fist comes down, the water splashes out and spreads. That's the way it works. Okay? Um, Okay, another thing that it's not about, the millennium, okay? It does include the millennium, but again, um, the millennium isn't, I want to argue it's not some future thing. I want to argue, and we'll get there, that the millennium is now. Again, it's the time that Christ establishes his kingdom and power and begins to reign primarily through his cross and resurrection. It's the time between his two advents, the time where he's reigning. It's not some future thing. It's now. And you see that, that millennium mentioned in Revelation 20. We'll get there eventually. I'll bring it up before then again. Um, another thing it's not about, the rapture. Okay? Um, you think I'm going to say we're in it because that's what I've been saying. Gotcha. I'm not going to say that. I'm actually going to say there isn't a rapture. Remember I told you to give me grace? Okay. Not like you think there is. I want to argue that. Okay? And we'll get there. Um, when Christ comes again, 
He's not going to whisk his own up to him and then go back up into heaven. I'll make that case. When he comes again, he comes to finish what he started. He comes in power and he comes to consummate and to make all things new. Um, Again, lastly, it's not about the Antichrist. Um, It's not about the Antichrist. And I'll say provocatively again, as with I say with a rapture, there isn't one. Okay, now provocative. Right. Okay, I do believe there is going to be an Antichrist. I think Revelation seems to make that clear. Some say there won't be. But I want you to think, when you think of Antichrist, I want you to think more of these. And some of these things I've mentioned, all these things are things we tend to that pop into our heads when we hear the book Revelation, right? The book isn't about any of these things. But when, when you think of Antichrist, think about it the way John talks about it in his letters. 1 John chapter 2, chapter 4, 2 John. Um, he talks about it as, the, as an, there are many Antichrists. That's, you, that's the most how John talks about it. John also, who wrote the letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Gospel of John also wrote the book of Revelation. Um, the Antichrist is, as John says in one of his letters, he says, um, let's see, do I have it here? He says it's anyone who uh, is not of, of the Spirit of Christ, who does not believe that Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior. Okay? This is, anti, this is against, it's literally what it means, it's against Christ. Now, will there be someone at the end who will come and who will rise up and who will be sort of the epitome of the one that's raised up against Christ? I think so. But the book's not about that. It's not about the millennium. It's not about uh, the rapture. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about being afraid. It's not about making charts. It's not even primarily about the future. Okay, so what is the book about? Um, let's look at how John opens the book in this, uh, the book of this letter to the churches, okay? Um, again, we don't have to go very far. In our English Bibles, in the ESV that we, that we read, it says, the revelation, first words on the page, the revelation, not of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like I said, in the Greek, it's even shorter. It's Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. Now, when we hear the word apocalypse, the word revelation, that's a translation of the word apocalypsis. And we think apocalypse. Some, some call this the apocalypse of St. John, and it is. We think of apocalypse now or um, a post-apocalyptic world. We think destruction, terror, um, disaster. And there's a lot of that in the book of Revelation. But that's not what John's saying here. Revelation is a perfect translation. It's a revealing. When you think of the book, I want you to think about it as what John says in the first words. He says it's a revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing of who Jesus Christ really is now and what he's done in history and what he's doing. Okay, so let's let's dive into those words just a little bit more deeply. Um, In the Greek, you can read this two ways. The revelation of Jesus Christ. You can read it as um, as a revelation of him, a revealing of the person of Jesus. We see him as he is. You can also read it in the Greek as it's ambiguous as a revelation from Jesus Christ. It's a message from him. Um, most commentators that I've read, and I agree with this, think that it's, it's a double meaning. It means both. It's purposefully ambiguous. And I think there's plenty of evidence in the text for that. Um, it's clearly from Jesus. If you look at verse 1, he gives, it to, he gives his revelation to John through an angel. He says, write this down. It's from Jesus. He's the one that's communicating it. Um, but it's also clearly about Jesus. It's of Jesus. Right. Um, if you look at chapter one, 
which we're going to get to in house church probably next week and certainly the week after. We'll take our time. I may preach on it next time. I may preach on the end of chapter one and, and the person of Jesus, the, the, the resurrected Christ that John, when he sees this Christ, he falls. John, remember, John was the best friend of Jesus on earth. And when he sees Christ as he currently is, when he sees Christ revealed, what does he do? He falls as a dead man. Um, it's the revealing of Jesus. Chapter 1, chapter 5, preeminently. Um, chapter 19, toward the end of the book. Chapter 22, you have this rider on a white horse. This king who's come to make all things new. He's going to wipe away our tears. He is prominent in the book. The book is about Jesus. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, it's wonderfully hopeful. When we tend to think about it being about all these other things and about charts and about hard to figure out, which no one has ever totally figured out this book, it is difficult. But John wants us to understand very clearly it's not difficult to know why he wrote it and why Christ gave it to him. It's a, it's a message and a revelation from Jesus and a revealing of Jesus. Um, it's about him. So Jesus gives it through an angel to John, to the seven churches in Turkey, Asia Minor then, to us. Um, and again, Satan is extremely interested in making us afraid of this book because he hates Jesus and he hates what Jesus has done and the victory. We're calling this series the victory of the lamb. This first sermon is, is called simply from the text, um, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we're calling the series the victory of the lamb because revelation is centered around and emanates out of. Again, remember, it's the last book in the Bible. What Christ has done in his life, in his cross in his resurrection and that he's reigning now in power in victory and that he's soon to return. This is what the book is about. And, and the book flows out of this reality and, and Satan just hates that. So one of the litmus tests for reading this book rightly, and I think honestly, because of what I said earlier, reading any book in the Bible rightly, reading any section of the Bible rightly, but certainly revelation is, is the person of Jesus Christ as he is, and what he came to do in his life, death, resurrection, reign, and imminent return, is that spotlighted in the way that we're unpacking this, in the way that we're reading this, in the way that we're interpreting it? Or are we being sidetracked by a bunch of other things? Are other things being highlighted and underlined? Because Jesus tells us, I'm the point of history, and I'm the point of God's word, and I am God's word. So if that's not what we're getting out of our understanding, we're understanding the book wrong. I just, that's, that's going to be our hermeneutic and our interpretation for the book. And I want to obviously make that case as we walk along. And you can go back to the text and listen and agree or disagree, and we can work through it together. Um, and just a minor note on what the book uh, is not about, or what the book is about, rather. Um, from a major to a minor note, uh, it's not, there's no S on the end. Uh, it, you hear revelations all the time, but it's, it's, it's again, I say that in joking because it's funny. It annoys me. Um, <laughs> and my, and, and, uh, my staff knows, the staff, our staff, they know that it annoys me. And so Meryl played a great trick on me. She's, she said, how about this logo? And if you've seen the logo, the victory of the lamb, it's great. Um, and across the top, it said Revelations with a big S. And it was the same size as everything else. And so I didn't know. It wasn't a giveaway. And I was like, I, my eyes started to twitch when I saw it. I was like, you're kidding, right? And uh, she's like, yeah, I was totally messing with you. Justin made, told me I had to do it. But it was her idea, which I love. That's fantastic. Um, but I say that in part as a joke, but also, seriously, it helps remind us. It's not revelations. It's not revealings of many things. It's a, again, it's a singular 
revelation, a revealing of what is really happening right now in heaven, which determines everything that happens on earth. What's really happening in the spiritual, which really determines everything in the physical. And that's one of the things I'll I'll finish with as I talk about sort of how to read it and giving you maybe a grid that we'll go back to and back to and back to. Um, is that there's a lot of duality with John. John loves duality. He loves this and that, heaven and earth, spiritual realm, physical realm, um, kingdom of God, kingdom of man, or kingdom of Satan. Kingdom of man and Satan are the same thing, by the way. And so there are all these oppositions. But the revealing shows us that Jesus, it shows us Jesus. And it shows us that he wins. And it shows us that if we are in him, regardless of what we are going through, if we are in Christ by faith, hid by faith in Jesus, if he is our refuge and our king, we win. Um, and so some of the commentaries on this book are called more than conquerors because that word is here in the book. We are more, regardless of what we're going through, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And um, I may get to this, it may be later in the notes, I think it probably is, but I just, in case it's not, I just want to say it now. Um, John wrote this book to, um, he wrote this book late Probably in the early 90s AD, he was the last living apostle, Jesus' best friend on earth. And he was exiled to a Roman penal colony called Patmos, which he mentions in this introduction here. We'll get to it in house church as we walk through the verses. Um, He was old. He was at the end of his life. And God said, I preserved you for a lot of reasons. And this is one of them. You're going to write this as the capstone to my my written word to the church. Um, And... He writes it to a beleaguered church. He writes it to a battered and a very persecuted church. Persecution, it ticked up. It was, it was bad in the first century. Obviously, I mean, Jesus got crucified. And what did he say? He said, hey, life isn't a bed of roses if you follow me. You don't expect to be treated better than the master. His call to us is what? Pick up your cross. That loses its edge because we wear crosses on our necks and stuff. And we have them in our bathrooms and, and have bowls of potpourri by them, which is great. But a cross in, that for, in the first century was was an instrument of execution and torture. It was, a, it, was, it, was a dreaded, it was a dreaded thing that was a sign of a state that ruled with an iron fist. You know, John, John read that text from Daniel earlier. We may, may touch on that in a second, but um, Rome was a brutal uh, ruler and, uh, and, 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 and Jesus died on a Roman cross. And so, um, and so the church in the first century, but ticking up with, with uh, Domitian, who was the emperor, in the late 80s and into the 90s through 96, at this time that John was probably writing, uh, was, was especially keen on persecuting the church with new fervor, persecuting Christians. And so what does John do? He writes this book to a church that is undergoing major persecution, and they're probably asking questions like, are we on the right side? Is Jesus really risen? Is he alive? Is he in power? Is he on his throne? Where is he? Why are we getting crushed? Are, are we doing something wrong? And John writes and he says, this is what's really going on. This is who Christ is. This is what he's done. He is reigning in power. And just as his victory went out through the cross, through apparent defeat and weakness, that is the economy of the lamb. That is the, the economy of victory of the church until he returns. It looks like you're losing, but as you suffer, his kingdom is going forward because he's pulling the levers, because he's the king, because all the other empires of the earth, including Rome, including America, including China, will be like chaff. But his kingdom, his kingdom is like a mountain that will fill the entire earth and his glory will spread and spread until he returns again.
and then he'll finish what he started. So, and I know in saying that, that some of that is in this last section here on how to read it. Um, and so I will try not to repeat myself too much, but a little repetition is okay. Okay. So um, how to read it. And by the way, and I, when John, there's a, there's a verse here where John literally says that. That's why I had Nathaniel read Revelation, not just the first verse, but one, one through three, because it's so front and center. We're trained at this part of the world, especially to be afraid of the book, sadly. But John, when he starts out, if you, if you have ears to hear, and if you noticed, and if you didn't, look with me again in verse 3. What does John say? He says, this is a revealing of Christ and from Christ. And then in verse 3, he says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So there's blessing in the reading aloud of this book. And blessed, he repeats it, are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Time is close. It's going to happen quickly. Okay. And that's one bit of many bits of evidence that um, a lot of this was happening right then during the had happened or was happening during that time. Some was future, but uh, not, not, a, not a ton of it. Um, and so what does John say? He says, this, is a, this book is a blessing to a church who is being persecuted, who's being pressed and who is afraid. It is a hope-filled, Christ-exalting book. Okay. So that leads right to how to read it, um, a, a bit of a grid and how I'll teach it. Um, and how, when I give the notes to the house church leaders, how we'll walk through it every week together. Um, it's Christ-focused. Teaching it and reading it as a Christ-focused and Christ-exalting book, like I said. Um, one example of that is, and we'll get to this chapter, we'll get to all the stuff in time, in detail. But Revelation 5.5, 5, um, it's maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. And I'm almost certainly will preach it when we get there. And um, in verse five of Revelation chapter five, Jesus, nobody is found. I won't belabor it because we'll get there. Nobody is found to set in motion the plan of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth for everything that's to proceed. Salvation has to happen. A reconciling of the intractable problem between God's love for people he made and for his creation and human sin. And God can't wink at sin. So we have to be destroyed because sin is in us. It's tied itself into who we are. What is the, how is the problem going to be solved so that God's creation can be saved and then restored? And, And John weeps because nobody's found. And the lamb comes and he approaches the throne and he grabs this sevenfold sealed book. It's perfectly sealed up. Nobody can open it. But there's this one who who is like a lamb who was slain who approaches and he grabs it. He goes all the way up to the throne and he grabs it and he opens this perfectly closed book. And he sets in motion the will of God Almighty through his life, death, and resurrection for all the rest of, of history. And praises just radiate out into all creation for what he's done. And from that point forward, it says that um, the seals of the book are opened. And from the seals come the seven trumpets. And then from the seven trumpets come the seven bowls. And then after that, it's the new creation. That's literally the outline for the book. It's the seals. That, after this chapter, chapter five, it's the seals that are open. And Jesus, because of, it says, because you were worthy. You were worthy and because you were slain and because you came to ransom us with your blood, Jesus, because of your victory in life, in death, in resurrection, and you are now reigning because of that, all of the rest of these seals, trumpets, bold, the seals can be opened, the trumpets can be blown, the bowls can be poured out, and everything can happen exactly as God intended it to happen. So everything comes from, it centers around Jesus and his victory. And we'll see that in more detail. Uh, a second example is Revelation 12. 
if you think about the whole book, it's 20, why am I, I had the number 24 in my head because it's, yeah, it's used a lot, 22 chapters. Um, in chapter 12, uh, again, this is something I'll, I'll outline next. Um, in chapter 12, which is right in the middle of the book, one of the ways you just count, you're like, yeah, it's pretty close to center. Um, but also, it's, I want to argue that it's, the book is an intro and a conclusion. You got that so far? I'm on, I want to simplify the book for you. It's a difficult book, but I want to help you demystify it some. One of the ways that we can do that is it's an intro and a conclusion, and then it's seven repeating cycles of the same thing. That's what repeating means, right? Same thing with increasing intensity each time. Revelation 12 is the fourth. It's right in the center. There are three, and then you have Revelation 12, and then there are three more, and then there's a conclusion. So as far as the seven sections, it's right in the middle. And what is Revelation 12 about? Pop quiz. I had candy here. I'd throw baby Ruth out to somebody if they got it. Revelation 12 is the birth of Jesus Christ to the woman. And then John's often mixing these symbols. They're laden with meaning. And, and also the woman becomes the church, I will, I will argue. And um, because the church is Christ's body, he unites us to himself, right? And so the center of the book is the birth of Jesus Christ. Literally, it's like the tent pole that holds up a structure. It's the central pillar that holds the entire book up. He starts it. He finishes it. He's in the middle of it. He sets all the things in motion. It's about Jesus. It's not about the rapture. It's certainly not about the Antichrist. Praise God. So, um, and that's another, so Christ, how to read it. Christ focused. Secondly, it's not, don't read it chronologically. That's really confusing. And again, I want to say that we want to read it recursively. Okay. Um, Or it's recapitulating. It recapitulates, it recaps. So it gives the time between, there's an intro, and then it gives the time between um, Jesus is, and this is just one reading and many agree and many disagree. This is the way I'm going to teach it. And we'll have to investigate the scriptures and see right together. We'll have to weigh it together. It, it is the time between Jesus's first and second coming repeated seven times throughout the book between the intro and the conclusion each time with increasing intensity. Okay. And so by the end, that's why by the end you get to this Armageddon this massive, but it's the same. It's the time between his two advents told seven times recapitulated. Um, and in the middle is what? Here's one bit of evidence that it's not chronological. In the middle is chapter 12. This, the middle of the seven sections is the birth of Jesus. How could it be chronological if the birth of Jesus is in the middle of the book? It's not. Okay. Um, and that's part and parcel of the type of literature, which we'll get much more into later. I'll mention it right here, but we'll get much more into it as we walk through the book. It's prophetic, but it's also something called apocalyptic, which I'll get to. And apocalyptic literature is very not chronological. It's trying to paint a picture for us. It's trying to create an environment wherein we understand what, it, what was, what is, and what's coming with Christ as the center, holding it all together and what he's done. Okay, so another way to read it, again, like I said, it's progressively with a progressive intensity. Every time the same picture unfolds between uh, the, the time between his two advents, it gets more intense. Okay, um, dual, another way to read it is dual realities, like I mentioned earlier. There's heaven and there's earth. What, what you see in chapter five, which is one of the really cool things about it's almost chapter five. Chapter one is an intro to the book. Chapters two and three are the letters to the churches. And then chapter four is basically like the real, the earnest start of the book. And in chapter five, um, you, you, well, at the beginning of chapter four, John says, um, I got taken up into heaven and, and, I, and there was a door that was open to me and I saw what was happening in heaven. And the way that it's presented is heaven is the control room. 
Heaven is the nerve center of the cosmos. And who's reigning in heaven? Jesus. And Jesus is pulling the levers of the control center of the cosmos, the risen Christ in whom we who look to him are represented. We sit with him, regardless of what's happening here, he's pulling the levers. And whatever happens in Revelation, the way to think about the book, but also reality. John is giving us a picture, Jesus through John, to the churches of why things are the way they are. Don't be deceived by what you see or feel or what you're in the middle of. Know what's really happening. And what it says is everything that's happening on earth is a result of what's happening in heaven. Jesus is the one pulling the levers. He's at the center of the control room. So there's heaven and there's earth. There's the already and the not yet, which is that Christ, when he came the first time, he established his kingdom. He would talk about how the kingdom is among you. The kingdom is here. The king, you're not far from the kingdom. The kingdom is in us, growing in us through faith because he, and he is now reigning. That's something I'm not going to establish here, but it's clear throughout the New Testament and it's clear in Revelation. He is reigning and he reigns through his church. And as his church is persecuted and as we're faithful to share the gospel, his kingdom grows. And it's like a mountain that's filling out the whole earth and that is sidelining other nations. Other nations will come and go, and Jesus is the one who sets them up, and Jesus is the one who deposes them. But he is reigning, and his kingdom will grow and will grow and will grow until he comes again to finish the work. Okay? So we also, another duality. So, so already not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet fully consummated until he comes again. Okay? And that's one of the reasons we have this persecution. Another duality is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They're almost synonymous. And the kingdom of man or the kingdom of Satan. You see a lot of that duality. There's no third way in the book of Revelation. Or in the, in what John's saying is in the world, there's no third road. You're either, um, you're either of the kingdom of this world and of man and of the enemy of Satan. Or you're, you're of the kingdom of the son of man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Um, also, it's highly symbolic. It's a highly symbolic book. Um, that's a feature, a common feature of apoc- ancient Near Eastern apocalyptic literature, which this definitely is. It's also a prophetic book, and it's also a letter. So it's a prophetic apostolic epistle, okay? Um, ancient Near uh, apocalyptic literature was common in the ancient Near East. It was, it was common. So a few examples. Um, we have some in the Old Testament. There are bits in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Daniel of apocalyptic literature. Um, there is some extra biblical, like not, not biblical, but books by Jews written during the time of the second temple when it was rebuilt after the Jews returned from exile. And then during that intertestamental period, the 400 years where God was silent. Um, and, and some of those books that I'm going to mention were apocalyptic. First, second Enoch, third, uh, second and third Baruch, fourth Ezra, the apocalypse of Abraham. So it was standard type of literature and, and John's audience would have been familiar with it. And he writes in a style in, in this literature, and they're expecting symbolic. And a symbol carries a ton of meaning with a picture. So you don't have to say it all. And it has a certain, I mean, it creates, it creates an environment. That's, those are some of the things that, um, that symbols do. So we don't, we want to be careful not to jump to just reading it literally. And to read it not literally is not to read it not faithfully. Actually, you need to read it according to the genre that it is. So to read apocalyptic literature literally is actually to read it unfaithfully. To read it wrongly, okay? So, um, for instance, let me just give you a few examples. Like, um, a sword is coming out of the mouth of Jesus, the conquering king, when he comes back. There's not, John doesn't want us to think that there's literally a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. What is he talking about? He's saying his word is power, and if you stand against his word, you're going down. His word cuts even to believers. His word cuts to very bone and marrow. 
It, cut, it goes straight into our hearts, unlike anything else can. And how did God create all things? He made them through the word. And he, so John, over and over again, more than any other book in the, in the Bible, is saying there's a very high Christology in this book. Je- he says in all sorts of ways, directly but often indirectly, Jesus is the one God. He is the creator. Out of, his word is power. His word cuts to devastate or cuts to heal. Those are the two ways it happens, right? Um, the beast isn't literally a beast. It's the state. In particular, in this, in this context, it, much, of, much of the beast in the state is Rome um, because that's, that's who, was, who was the state that was beastly in a lot of its ways that crucified Messiah, that was crucifying Christians and persecuting them. Um, the dragon or serpent is... Yep. Satan. And that, again, takes us back to the garden, which John is always going back. We'll get to that in a second. The, the key to Revelation, to understanding it, is not to go ahead and, and not to do what some people call newspaper eschatology. Okay, re, try to figure out what's going on now that can help us understand the book. No, no, it's to go back. It's to go back to the Old Testament. This is the most, um, this is the most Old Testament-saturated book in the New Testament. That there are, it's 22 chapters, and there are between 400 and 1,000 references to the Old Testament in the book. So there's almost, I don't know that you could find a single verse that isn't packed with some sort of allusion, um, whether obvious or not, to the Old Testament. So the way to understand this book is to go back and to say, okay, where's, what's this coming out of? Um, and, and one of the ways that we do that, that, and that's why we had John, so it starts from the very start. John uh, Glenn, not John, the guy who wrote it, I have to be careful. Um, John Glenn, who read that passage from Daniel 2, that wasn't just a random Old Testament passage that we picked, right? Um, there are three verses that the, ter- the, first, uh, the first verse or three verses in Revelation um, that Nathaniel read, Revelation 1, 1 through 3. There are three verses in Daniel 2 that those starting verses in the book of Revelation are alluding to. And they're from that passage that John read. And so from the get-go, in an obvious way, where John says, this book is about Jesus, and it's from Jesus, and it's good news to a persecuted church. But also in a very, in a very elusive way, he's alluding to a passage in the Old Testament that he wants his hearers and his readers to go back to. And when that passage is, is about what? It's about it's about how one is going to come like a son of man and he's going to come and he's going to establish a dominion that will literally destroy the other kingdoms of the earth. They will come and go, but everything from the kingdom of Persia to the kingdom of Babylon to the kingdom of Greece to the kingdom of Rome to the kingdom of China to the kingdom of America, and I could go on and on and on, will, will not last forever. And uh, are, are in large part, if not completely, opposed to the kingdom of Christ. And, uh, and we don't need to worry about that, is one of John's points. We don't need to put our hope in that state. We need to put our hope in the one whose kingdom will last forever. And that's what, that's what, uh, that's what the passage in Daniel is about, you know, 500 years before Christ came. And then Christ comes along and John writes this book which is a revelation from Jesus. And he says, yeah, this, this book is about that. This book is about that kingdom expanding through the work of Jesus Christ and never ending. Um, it's, it's a high, in, within symbolism, it's a highly numerical book. That's part of the symbolism. The numbers are symbols. So John's favorite numbers are 3, 4, 7, 10, and 12. So let me just give you two quick examples. Um, in verse 4, we encounter the seven churches. The letter is written to the seven churches. And then uh, we see seven spirits of God. 
So um, it is literally written to be a cyclical letter to seven churches in Asia Minor, Turkey. But um, also there's symbolism there. It's not just, okay, it's just written to those. No, the seven churches, seven is a divine number and it's a number of totality. It's the perfect number. It's the perfect number of fullness. And so what is, what is John saying? It's going to go to those churches, but those churches represent the church, the church universal, the church historic. And so it's to all of us. It's to the, through those churches, local churches in Asia Minor, it's to the church um, through all space and time. And then the seven spirits, it's not like God has seven spirits that go out. That's what the, that's what the letter says, but again, it's symbolic. And numbers are part of that symbolism. That God has seven spirits going out. He, he has, God is one spirit, holy. But the seven is a number of power, of fullness, of completion. That, that spirit goes out in full and perfect power through the work of Christ to perfectly all of the earth and accomplishes the will of the risen lamb. That's, that, those are just two examples of what that means. Um, again, it's not primarily about the future. I've already talked a lot about, a lot about this, so I won't, I won't spend much time on it. Um, it's about the past. Um, it's about what's happening in John's time, and then it is some about what's going to happen. Um, much of this book, I want to argue, is it was already fulfilled um, either before 70 AD, in 70 AD, or during the time of John. It was being fulfilled. So we don't want to scan the skies or scan the newspapers to understand this thing. We want to go back. We want to soak in what this is the capstone of, the Bible. We want to soak in the Old Testament, which points to Jesus, the ministry of Christ, and the Gospels and the letters. And then um, that will help us understand more what John is saying in this difficult but glorious book. Um, I already mentioned one example of that with Revelation 1, 1 through 3 and how there's an allusion there to Daniel 2. And also I'll just say there's a, when you look at uh, the whole book and you look at the fact that it's a capstone to the entire book, the Bible, all of God's word, one author, God. Um, it's actually a perfect tie-in in every way, but at the end, to the beginning of the Bible. So what does John do? In the, in the beginning of the Bible, what do we have? The first three chapters, number, chapter one is about what? In Genesis one. Creation. And then chapter two. It is about creation, just the zoom ins, but it's chapter two. I heard someone say, say the fall, you're ahead of it. Marriage, right? It's a zoom into the crown of his creation in this beautiful union because Adam realizes there's all this awesome creation, but there's not one fit for me. So there's this zoom lens into man and woman in the, the family unit. Beautiful. And then chapter three. So chapter one, creation. Chapter two, marriage. Chapter three, you said it earlier. The fall. The serpent. The last four chapters of Revelation, the last three things that happen. Okay. Okay. So we have creation, uh, marriage, serpent. The, the four, Revelation 19, the serpent. The serpent wins, in, in, by the way, in Genesis 3. But only temporarily. There's even there a prophecy about how he's going to have his head crushed, right? It points us forward to Jesus. Revelation 19, the serpent loses. The dragon loses, okay? Uh, second to last chapter of the Bible, you have a marriage. Revelation 21, the wedding feast of the lamb. All marriages point to the marriage. And then what is the last chapter of the Bible? Not creation, but a new creation. Okay, so what is John doing? He's reminding us, go back this is all of a piece. This is a capstone to God's perfect real word, which converges in and helps us understand Jesus Christ and worship him and have great hope. Um, but it's also this beautiful, it's this beautiful literary mirror ring structure. It's called a chiasm. The whole Bible is a chiasm. It's a ring structure and it's showing us there's one message. There's one author 
And if the Bible is a history book, which it is, it's saying God's plan for all of history is perfect. It's choreographed. He uses evil. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will use evil for his victory and for our victory, the cross. That's what it's all about. And he wins and he's reigning and he's returning and we're in him and we have a message to proclaim. That's what the book's about. Um, okay, why this book now as we, as we walk toward a close? This is why this book now in this story. Why this book now? Um, and I'll, so the world scene, in brief, it's a time of fear. It's a time of whether it's from an epidemic or China on the rise, what's going to happen with Taiwan, or we seem to be disintegrating in some ways as a nation. Um, there's all this stuff happening, right? Um, but again, uh, it's, you know, paganism's rising in the West and all these things. Um, I've already said this, so that's good, but this book was written into a context of, of where the church, of great persecution of the church, and where the church had many reasons to fear and in many ways was afraid, but, God, but, but Jesus says, no, the church has a great hope. I have overcome, and they with me. Hang on, hold on. You are more than conquerors, okay? Um, and so I, I thought that, um, so if you think about this book and have a fear response, you're reading it wrongly. The devil's doing a number on us. Um, I, I told, so Calvin, uh, I don't think he would have taught it wrong, but uh, almost famously, he, um, he never wrote a commentary. On, never, I, don't, I don't believe he ever preached through Revelation. So in his massive, almost whole Bible commentary set, Revelation is, is uh, conspicuously absent. And, um, and I have a, a pastor friend that I told this week that I was preaching through the book, and he said, oh, I hate that book. And that's, that's a great picture of a lot of the response that we have. Um, and again, John in verse 3 says, blessed are they who read this book. This book is a huge, huge blessing. Um, statism's on the rise. Uh, there's a lot of state worship. Rome was built around state worship. The allegiance was to the state before even the family. It was to the state and to the family, and the family was a subset of the state. We're seeing that rise now. Anytime everything in a culture, politics can be good. Statecraft is necessary. Government is a necessary evil. Our forefathers understood that. But any time that everything becomes political, then there's nothing downstream of... Everything is downstream of politics. There's no culture that's upstream of it. That's a sign of unhealth in a culture. Okay, think about Nazi Germany. Think about the USSR, the Soviet Republic. Think about Soviet states. Think about North Korea. I could, just, I could keep going. Everything's about the state. That's a great sign of unhealth, okay? Increasingly, we have 24-hour news channels. Everything is politicized. Everything is political. Everything is hanging on the next presidential election. I want to free us from, in part by going to this great, hopeful book that features Christ and shows us it's his kingdom and he is reigning and it will never end. That's our hope. Not America. We ought to be good citizens. We ought to vote. We ought to do our part. But we're not hanging our hopes on America or the next presidential election. And the next president or this president or whatever or the past president, not the Messiah. Not omnicompetent. Can't do it all. Never meant to be. And, and to the degree that, that a state is opposed to Christ, that state will be blown away like chaff. Okay? Jesus appoints rulers and states and he deposes them. He is the ruler. He's on his throne. Um... Also, another reason I'm preaching it, there's just a particularly, I think, insidious, I I shouldn't call it that, that's the wrong word. I think there's a wrong and unhelpful and therefore um, damaging theology of the book that's prevalent in this part of the world at this time in history. Um, It's been a very short time, 
and uh, that it's been prevalent, and it's a very small part of the world where it's prevalent. But the theology that in- helps us interpret this book largely as future and, lo- and with a ton of graphs and stuff, and that focuses, tends to focus on a lot of things that aren't Jesus, crucified, risen, reigning, and soon to return, um, is prevalent and prominent in this part of the world. And so I just want to help provide another way, another possible way of reading this. Um, another reason is that the supernatural in this book is blatant, like I said. We understand part of the grid for John, the dualistic nature of the book, is that what's happening here is because of what's happening in heaven. What's happening in the physical is because of what's happening in the spiritual. It's a pulling back of the curtain on what's normally hidden. That's what Revelation, that's what the book's about. So it helps us see with real eyes. John, all of a sudden, he sees who Christ really is, and he hits the deck. He is this glorious, conquering being who is the living God before whom every knee will bow, even the ones who crucified him, even those who are opposed to him. He is the king. He is reigning. He is returning. We are reigning with him. And so uh, we live in a disenchanted, increasingly skeptical age, not, not that is driven by science, but that is driven by scientism. There's a difference. Science is helpful. Scientism is the belief that only science can give us true knowledge. And that is false, and that is idolatry, and that's actually unscientific. Um, and so this is reminding us, it's re, I want us to be re-enchanted as we walk through this book, through understanding that what is happening here is a result, give us spiritual eyes, is a result of what's happening in heaven. What's happening in the physical is a result of what's happening in the spiritual. There's a battle raging, and we are in a high-stakes war, and Jesus has won the victory, and he has called us to fight with him by faith. So um, that, is, that is reality. Okay, um, and maybe most of all, and then I'll close the story, um, maybe the, my most favorite reason for wanting to preach and teach this book, other than that I feel like the Spirit has led us to this, and lots of people have either finished Revelation or preaching it this year, or Daniel, or for a reason. For a lot of the reasons I gave, I think. <clears throat> I think it's time. But my granddad, my, maybe my favorite reason for uh, wanting to preach and teach this, through this book is that my mom's dad, um, he had a favorite saying. He knew what a sinner he was. He had a past. We all do. We all do. He had a, he had a past. He knew he was a sinner. And he said, people are fond. He was a trial lawyer. So he had this grizzly. Not that all trial lawyers have a grizzly voice. Stephen's looking at me like, why are you talking like that? <laughs> um, he, had, he would say it uh, over and over again, especially the older he got and the closer to death. <clears throat> He's one of the people I can't wait to meet in heaven the most. Um, and he would say, people are so fond. People love say, oh, sweet baby Jesus, meek and mild. You know, Nathaniel's laughing because he totally can hear Pawpaw, we called him Pawpaw, saying that. <clears throat> I mean, how hick and southern is that, Pawpaw? We had, a, we had another, my dad's dad was Peepaw. <clears throat> I always thought that was normal. Um, he said, Jesus wasn't mild. He was a warrior. He endured the wrath of God Almighty for me. And he knew that, and he would tear up, and I would tear up, and I'm about to tear up every time he said that. And uh, he knew that Jesus was a king and a warrior and a lion. And he laid his life. His greatest act of strength was an act of weakness, laying his life down. He was the conquering king who loved us to death. And Revelation shows us that. It shows us the real Christ, the reigning Christ, the one who gave his life for us and his power and his beauty and his glory. It's a revealing of him. Revelation uh, 1, 5 through 7 talks about, it says to him, he's talking about Jesus, to him who loves us. Literally, that word is Um, to the one loving us. How good is that? 
to the one who, to him who loves us and has, get this, freed us. And that is past tense. So the first one is literally to the one loving us currently, right now. He's loving his own and he loved us all the way to death and he has freed us. That's a past tense Greek verb. It's done. It's a completed verb. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. This Christ conquered through death by becoming our sin and through that payment he freed us by his blood john shows us that christ crucified resurrected and reigning in power who is our friend who loves us who calls us to a life of faith a life of war a life of victory through laying our lives down and a life of spreading that gospel to the world um and and yes he's terrifying um, he's, he's, not, he's not sweet baby Jesus meek and mild. He's terrifying in his love and in his glory. Um, it's the opposite of the pasty Renaissance Jesus, you know? And the chosen show has gone a good, it gone a good deal to kind of give us a better picture of the human Jesus who was a, a first century, um, man, he was a first century Jewish carpenter and stonemason. Um, but he reigns now as, as the risen king. Um, Dorothy Sayers says, we've effectively paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, but Revelation shows us the lion roaring. It lets us hear him roar and we see him. Um, and the message isn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, although that is true in itself, but that's not the message, the whole message of the gospel or of the book of Revelation. It's rather flee from the wrath of the lamb um, who, is, who is coming, who is the roaring lion of Judah. He's, he laid his life down for you. He's freed, us, he's freed us by his blood. He took his life up again. And the only safe place to hide from his coming wrath and judgment, which is coming, which is coming, is in him. The only safe place to hide is in him by faith because in love he laid his life down for us. And so we are either against him, and that's a terrifying place to be, and it's a losing place, or we're with him. Not because we're perfect, but because he is, and he became our sin. Um, as I close, uh, let me just, let me just uh, be very brief here because I haven't been and, 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 and compress this story. Charles, a uh, man named Charles, was born in Kelvedon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Essex, England, in 1834 of Dutch ancestry. He was the son and grandson of pastors. He was raised in strict adherence to the scriptures. Um, he poured over his father and grandfather's books. Among his early reading was Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I would highly recommend, and Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, again. Um, he read Aileen's Admonition to the Unconverted Sinner and Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted. And rather than being encouraged by those, he was deep, more deeply convinced that he was unconverted and, um, and under the wrath of God. Um, he wasn't saved at age 15, he was seeking a satisfying answer from lots of people, including lots of pastors, to the question, how can I get my sins forgiven? And no one can give him an answer. Isn't that, isn't that tragic? Um, at age 15, he was heading to church, and he, it was there, I, there was an ice storm and a snowstorm, and he ducked into a small church. It was a primitive Methodist church. And uh, it was probably even fewer people than here, just a scattering of folks. And there was, um, there, the pastor wasn't even preaching. It was, a, it was a lay elder who, got, who was up there preaching. And Charles said uh, that he, by the end of uh, 10 minutes, he'd reach, by 10 minutes, he'd kind of reached the end of his tether. Like he was out of words. He, he was just sweating bullets. Um, it, um, but his text was this. Look unto me and be ye saved, 
all the ends of the earth. And Charles loved to tell the story in later years. He says he didn't even, not only could he only preach for 10 minutes and reach the end of his tether, he he didn't even pronounce the words correctly, uh, but it didn't matter. Um, He looked at Charles after about 10 minutes and he was done, kind of, okay, what else? And he looked out at Charles and he could see that he was new because there was so few people. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. And he proceeded to say, and Charles, Charles said, the, met, the, the, the comment struck its mark. And he said, you, sir, if you look not to Christ, you will be miserable until you do in this life and the next. And uh, the man was, uh, was Charles Spurgeon, as you may have guessed, who went on to become uh, the 19th century's greatest preacher and one of certainly the greatest preachers in, in history. Um, and it's a simple and a true message. Um, look to Christ raised up for us on a cross and be saved. Um, that's what the book is about. It's apocalypsis Yesu Christu. It's a revealing of Jesus Christ who came and left all the trappings of glory to be, to be born poor and crucifiable to save us if I can say that, who not only died for us, but lived a life for us. And when we look to him, his life counts for us. His righteousness counts for us. His death counts for us. His resurrection over death and his conquering of sin counts for us. And we are seated with him in the heavenlies and he is reigning and he is coming again. And the levers that he is pulling, they, they have a perfect effect here on earth, even when it doesn't look like it. And he is our hope, and we truly, we don't need to bury our heads in the sand. No matter what is going on, we have a great hope, and we have nothing to fear because he is our hope. Look to Christ, not as we want him to be, not as the world tells us that he is, not perhaps as we have imagined him in the past, but as he is, and John shows us that, he reveals that Christ to us. It's about him, and it's from him. And that is what I want to do together, to look to Jesus Christ as we walk through this book together, to be saved, to be sanctified, to be filled with the Spirit, to be filled with hope, and to be sent out into this world, a charged people with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that we are reigning, that we are more than conquerors, and that we have nothing to fear but God himself, and he has taken even that fear away. We have a healthy fear, not a craven. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, your, your word. I thank you that it's Jesus I thank you that he embodies your word. He is your word. And we have these scriptures to bring us to him, to delineate who you are and what you've done for us and your plan for all of history. And I thank you for this book, that everything converges perfectly in it and that is a glorious treasure. And I pray that it would be that to us. It would fill us with hope and fix us, fixate us on the risen Jesus who loved us to death and whose blood frees us from our sins. We love you. Would you bless the rest of this time? We say, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen.